You all ready to join me today in our trip to outer space? Yeah. Albert shivers. The Matrix doesn't happen. That's very true. Come along quietly or not. They don't have to like it, but they're gonna see what happens. Goodbye, wimps. And now, without further ado, from Albert Shivers. The general concept is that creativity flourishes in an in a atmosphere of freedom. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Planet Shivers podcast. I am Albert Shivers, and it is jazz musician Bill Crow who lands on Planet Shivers in this episode. And I am very excited for you to hear it. That's all I could say. I found out about Bill Crow through the PBS jazz documentary Jazz Ambassadors which covered a multitude of musicians who toured the Soviet Union in the late 50s and early 60s. Bill Crow was the bassist for Benny Goodman during that tour. I made a short list of people who were interviewed in that documentary and Bill Crow was on that list and I contacted just about everybody on the list and was able to get in touch directly with Bill and have this conversation with him. As I explored his resume more, I found out that he not only played with Benny Goodman during the Soviet Union tour, he played with Stan Getz, Jerry Mulligan, was friends with jazz vocalist Dave Lambert, swapped records with Charlie Parker, and his list of accomplishments is probably as tall as his bass itself. And the bass is not the only instrument he played. He played trumpet, trombone, saxophone, sang, and did some percussion. One thing that really excited me about this story was his beginnings, which is interesting. Bill was born in 1927 in Othello, Washington. And one of my favorite parts of his story was that one of the first, if not the first, jazz he was introduced to was through his music teacher playing him West End Blues by Louis Armstrong. Anybody who knows that song and its relevance in music history knows that that's that's a fun one to have be your introduction to jazz. A conversation that was really meant to be just 40 minutes to an hour ended up being two hours. Um, We cover Bill Crow's entire life and that brought me to a little bit of a a problem with how I was going to edit it. From the production standpoint of the show, there's one of two ways you can go about this. Two roads you can go down. You can either chop the episode up into individual stories release them spaced out over time, maybe a little bit more palatable to do a bunch of shorties than one big one, or I could just hand you the one big one on a silver platter and say, here you go, here's everything. And that's the way I want to go about it for this. Bill's story is a detailed one, and any chopping up of it, I feel, would disrupt the wholeness of his life 
to hear it told from basically beginning to where he's at now. In the future, I am thinking about isolating some of the stories that are the most interesting either to me or in general and putting them out as shorts based off of this episode. But for right now, I want to give you the entire story from beginning to end uncut. And that is what we're going to do. So before we get to Bill Crow, I just want to nudge you in the direction of my Instagram, at Albert Shivers. I have a lot of new art stuff cooking, and you can check it out there. Uh, Next month, five of my newest pieces will be featured at the Gamut Art Gallery. These are my larger pen and ink illustrations that you'll get to see if you can make it there. And also check out the Albert Shivers Artist Patreon page. If you want to throw some bucks at the show, help the production, that'd be cool. If not, just enjoy and listen. That's the best way you could support the show is just listening and spreading it around. So with all that, let's get to my conversation with Bill Crow. It was an honor to speak to him. I was very thankful for him to give so much time for the show. And I hope you enjoy all the stories he has to tell. If you have even a small interest in jazz, this is a fantastic introduction. And if you consider yourself a jazz aficionado and a jazz expert, I bet you that you will hear some things in this episode that you may not have heard before, stories that you're not familiar with. So either way, enjoy my conversation with jazz musician and author of two books, Bill Crow. Tired of having headache pain, nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea? Try new Pepto-Bismol chewables made in grape, peanut butter, and cherry flavor for family and kids alike. That's right, David. And all this and more can be found at a low price at your local pharmacy. For our southern guests, keep a lookout for the new brand, Peppy Biz Milk. Must be 18 years or older. The purchase has a parent before overdosing. Do not take of pregnant with triplets. You are listening to the first station on your dot. WCNW operating on a frequency of 1,500 kilocycles in Brooklyn, New York. So I guess we'll start from the beginning. Um, tell me a little bit about where you were born. Well, I was born in Othello, Washington, which is over in the desert country in eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather and grandmother had a store there. Uh, he had a bad lung, so he had to live in dry climate, and that was why he chose that place. So uh, uh, when my mother was ready to have me, she went over there. But uh, uh, she and my father and the rest of the family... Uh, grew uh, uh, lived in Kirkland, Washington, which is across the lake from okay. Seattle. Okay. And what was it that you you got your musical inspiration a bit from your mother? Correct. Well, yes, she was a musician. She played the piano, and uh, she taught. Oh, she sang very well, and she taught voice and elementary piano. She tried to teach me the piano when I was about four, and I ran into a wall. I couldn't uh, couldn't get both hands going. So, mm-hmm. um, in the fourth grade, I, I, I took up the trumpet, and uh, in the sixth grade, I complained to my music teacher that I couldn't get enough lip to play the first parts. Mm-hmm. I wanted to play the melody, 
And uh, so he looked at my teeth and he said, well, I think maybe a bigger mouthpiece would be better. So the school owns a baritone horn. Why don't you try that? And I took it home and fell in love with it. It was a really nice instrument and the parts were interesting. So, uh, oh, by the time I got into high school, I got an after school job and got a, a good king baritone of my own. $75, I think it was. I had to pay it off one time, which yeah. established my credit. <laughs> right. Gotcha. One other thing that stood out to me uh, when you were young, you remember one of the first jazz tunes you were introduced to was Louis Armstrong's West End Blues. Yeah, that was that same teacher. I was walking okay. by his house one day, and he waved me in, and uh, I was very impressed that he had a a record player that had records that had two tunes on them. I, okay. We had we had an Edison at home that you cranked up, and uh, and one cylinder had one one tune on it. And so they they didn't have a a, a B side. No, no, it was a cylinder. You slipped it onto a. Uh, sleeve and uh, uh, the uh, uh, the grooves were were symmetrical, so that it, w it was like a little. You drop the needle into the first groove, and the threaded uh, rod would carry the needle across the entire uh, cylinder as it spun. And everything was acoustic; there was no electricity involved. You just cranked the, the spring up, and you, know, you adjusted the little lever for uh, I never knew whether it was a tenor singing fast or a baritone singing slow. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so then you started collecting your own records. Um, what were some of the, once you were introduced to jazz, what were some of the records you were picking up? Well, uh, when he played me that, that West End Blues, uh, that was because I was a trumpet player. He thought mm -hmm. I'd be interested in that uh, opening cadenza, which I was, it blew yeah. me away. And uh, so I was charmed with Louis Armstrong. And uh, uh, fortunately, there was a little store in our small town that sold stoves and refrigerators. And in the corner, there were 78 records. Mm -hmm. And there was a little record player there that you could listen to them on to see if you wanted to buy them. <laughs> and whoever was stocking his supply of, of records for sale uh, had access to uh, a lot of the small jazz labels. They had, you know, uh, Columbia and Victor and uh, the, the major labels, but they also had Commodore and Ash and Signature and those records. So uh, I was, uh, and it was a nice uh, assortment. I didn't know anything about the different schools of jazz at that time. It was just mm -hmm. all jazz. Right. So uh, uh, I, I bought... Uh, you know, I would save up. I had a little after-school job, and, and records were from 35 to 75 cents, I think. So I would save up, and uh, every couple of days I'd go down and buy another record. And I'd take it home and memorize it. You know, you would read okay. everything on the label and find out as much as you could about it. They used to print the names of the musicians yeah. on the label. Mm -hmm. those days. So I, I was introduced to Eddie Miller and... and Jack Teagarden and Eddie Condon and uh, uh, and uh, I found an album of Mary Lou Williams and Bill Coleman and I had never heard of either of them mm -hmm. but from the liner notes I found out that he had moved to Europe and was not available in this country so this was kind of a rare recording. Mm 
Okay. Yeah, and that's so that would be pretty early for Mary Lou Williams. Was that be early in her career? I think so. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, not as early as when she was with uh, with uh, the Clouds of Joy, but mm -hmm. right in there somewhere. Gotcha. And then uh, uh, it's funny. Uh, I I got uh, all of the Benny Goodman stuff. I love the 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 band, but I, I was especially uh, fascinated by the small groups. Yeah. I thought Teddy Wilson was fantastic. Nat Cole was really my favorite piano player in those days. It seemed to me that he had, I mean, I had a couple of Art Tatum record, records, mm -hmm. but that was just like uh, impossible. You know, you couldn't uh, you couldn't uh, uh, aspire to playing like Art Tatum, but you could to Nat Cole. And most of the piano players I knew uh, tried to uh, to pick up what they could from Nat's records about how mm -hmm. to feed for a soloist and how to voice certain things and what, how to swing, you know. Right. Um, uh, so that was really nice. And then uh, I got interested in uh, in some of the boogie-woogie piano players. I bought some of those records. And one of them was Oscar Peterson. Okay. He was about 18 years old when he made his first Victor record, I think, playing boogie-woogie. <laughs> <laughs> Did you listen to any, by chance, uh, Dorothy Donegan? I never heard Dorothy until I got to New York. Okay. Uh, that was in the 50s. Uh, I had never heard of her, but she was playing around town, and I, and I heard her when I, when I got here, you know. Mm. Yeah, she was somebody who, who really struck me as, as pretty incredible once I found her recordings. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the women in jazz at that time were... Uh, Hazel Scott, who I, I I thought she played well, but I always thought that she was she should play in the dark or something. She was so busy being beautiful, you know. <laughs> Dick Dick Perry would would qualify that as having a beauty beauty attack. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she had a lot of slick things. She'd play two pianos at once and mm -hmm. uh, number, but uh, but Mary Lou seemed to be more. Uh, just a serious player, you know, and uh, and I, I really admired her playing. Mm. And then, uh, oh, there were there was a harpist, I think, with uh, uh, the guy that had the band at the Hickory House there for a while. There he had some records out. Uh, I can't think of his name at the moment, but I think his wife was a harp harp player. Okay. And, uh, Oh, and, and I, uh, I heard Dave Tuff on records very early, and I, I admired his playing. Uh, there was just something about the spirit of his playing, and also Sid Catlett. I thought he was a, a wonderful drummer. Um, I could see what uh, 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 um, with, the, with the with the Benny Goodman Quartet with no bass player and and Gene Krupa playing drums. I could see what he was doing on the drums. It had, had a lot of swing to it. But when I would watch him uh, in the movies and things like that, mm -hmm. it, it always seemed like he was demonstrating what he was doing rather than just <laughs> doing it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I got to know him later. We were on a tour with him, and he was really a very sweet guy. But 
you know, he used those two uh, white spotlights on uh, on the floor beside his drum. That when he got really got into playing fast and hard, yeah. these lights would come on, and <laughs> he didn't want to wear makeup. They they blanched him out. They were so bright. So he would try to keep a suntan as much as he could. And when we were on the road, if the train stopped and the sun was shining, he'd be standing in the doorway, <laughs> adding to his suntan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, you you also played in um, the army band. Yeah. Right? Well, when uh, when I was in high school, my my this I had the same wonderful school teacher mm -hmm. uh, from the fourth grade through graduation. Al Benest was his name, and uh, he was very encouraging. When uh, there were two or two of us that played the baritone horn in the high school band. And when I saw that uh, we were just doubling the trombones, uh, the, some of the baritone parts in other other arrangements had a line of their own. Quite often they were taken from orchestral arrangements, and I would get the cello part mm -hmm. to play on baritone. So uh, I liked that better. And and uh, if there were a lot of trombone players playing the same thing I was playing, I'd make up another part. And my partner, the other baritone player, said, he's not playing what's written. And and uh, Vanessa said, for him, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my introduction to improvisation. And uh, then he started a swing band. He bought a bunch of stocks, and they put these little, this little band together to rehearse after school. And I wanted to be in it. And he said, well, there's no baritone horn parts, really. Uh, but my brother had gone in the Navy and he'd left a Busher alto saxophone under his bed. So I got that out and practiced it for a couple of weeks till I could read some of the parts, uh, whatever was in the staff, mm -hmm. I could play. And then I started being the third alto player in this swing band. But uh, in my senior year, we, we uh, uh, merged with another high school and about three good alto players came in from this other school and I was out of a job but our drummer had graduated so I ran to the drum set belonged to the school and I ran over to the filling station where he was working now and said show me what you play you know and then I became the drummer for the swing band and mm -hmm. I, I stayed with that uh, after I uh, started college uh, I, I went to the University of Washington but I was still playing with this band because no other drummer had showed up yet. Mm -hmm. And I bought a set of drums. I found a wonderful old beat-up set of drums that somebody sold me very cheap and kept it in my room and practiced it and drove everybody crazy. <laughs> but uh, when I went in the Army, I was thinking I would get to be a baritone horn player in some band because I didn't, I didn't put down any of the other things I knew how to do. I was a printer and... I was a meat cutter. I, I had worked in print shops and, and butcher shops after school and on Saturdays. And, mm -hmm. But uh, they saw in my school records that I'd had half a year of typing, so they put me in an office. Okay. And it took me, uh, oh, about six months, I think, after my basic to, uh, to, to find a band that I could get in. I finally got in at Fort Lewis, Washington. And no sooner had I gotten into the band than they shifted out to Fort Meade, Maryland. <laughs> Made it the, uh, the second army band. Uh, but I was playing baritone horn there. 
and I met a cornet player who knew all. He he was a moldy fig. He knew all the music from Louis Armstrong to Armstrong to about uh, Muggsy Spanier, I think. Okay. And, uh, he could accept the Benny, Benny Goodman Quartet, but he didn't like anything any more modern than that. And mm -hmm. so he taught me that whole repertoire. I learned. Uh, uh, to my to my benefit, because when I got to New York, I started getting jobs with people like Jimmy McPartland and, uh, and Vic Dickinson and mm -hmm. all those people, and I knew all those tunes. It was great. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, this cornet player, finally, I was playing tailgate baritone horn with him, and he finally said, uh, "Why don't you get a valve trombone? That's more of a jazz instrument." So I did. I found a used one in, in Baltimore. It cost me 30 bucks, I think, an old con. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was playing drums in the service club band because all the other drummers in our band were either percussionists or, or street drummers, and they didn't want to play the trap set. So mm -hmm. I sent for my, my drums at home, and I would go play these jobs. And I had a, a stand that I would keep the the, the valve trombone beside me on the on the bandstand mm -hmm. and when it was a chance for me to play a chorus I'd pick up the trombone and, and keep the feet working while the trumpet player came over and played time on the cymbal okay. and that, that was our system for the for the army and then when I played uh, uh, we had certain concerts that we would play more like what they can now call stage bands mm -hmm. uh, we had a good arranger that wrote big band charts and that kind of thing. And we'd go play concerts for hospitals, army hospitals and things like that. And uh, then we did a couple of shows and uh, there were bassoon parts and we didn't have a bassoon player. So uh, with a with a plunger and the valve trombone, I would imitate a bassoon <laughs> and play all those parts. <laughs> so when I got out of the army, I came back... Uh, and instead of instead of living at home and going to college like I had done before the army, I moved into a, a houseboat on Lake Union, which was very close to the university, and uh, it was owned by a couple of musicians. And I think there were four of us living in that hmm. house on a raft, and uh, so we had jam sessions all the time in that houseboat. And I, I started to meet all of these musicians that uh, were either going to college or working around New York, uh, around Seattle. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that there was a jazz scene there <laughs> until I until I moved there. And it turned out that there were five or six clubs that had jazz bands and a couple of Chinese restaurants that had solo piano players. Uh, uh, and in the black section, there was a, a couple of really hot clubs that mm -hmm. I could... Uh, and, uh, and in, in meeting all these different people, I met Quincy Jones, who was 18 at that time, still in high school, and his friend, R.C., who was a blind piano player. And we all, I never knew what his name was. It was Ray Charles, but uh, everybody <laughs> called him R.C. Okay. <laughs> there you go. And it was, uh, 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 Quincy was just starting to write then. Uh, he, uh, there was a guy named Bumps Blackwell that had a big rehearsal band and when he heard I was a trombone player he said oh man we need another trombone player he says come on over and he said, I'll write you a chart and put a solo in there for you <laughs> so, so that was my introduction to the black uh, uh, musicians in Seattle mm. and uh, 
there was a wonderful tenor player named Gerald Brashear and a trumpet player named Floyd Stanifer. It was, uh, it was really nice, good music. So was the jazz scene in Seattle like a bit more, for lack of a better phrase, underground than it was in like the biggers, like New York and stuff? Well, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, their liquor laws were weird in Washington State. Uh, uh, you, you couldn't go to a nightclub and buy a drink. You had to bring your own bottle and, and they would sell you expensive mixers, you know, that's how they <laughs> stayed alive. And... Uh, and the and the, club, and the nightclubs had to close at midnight, so there was a tremendous number of after-hours clubs that uh, I know. There's a guy named Russian John that owned about six or eight clubs, and the police were tight with him. But they had to come and raid one of his clubs about once a month, and it would close, and another one that had been closed for a long time would open, <laughs> and. Uh, so this uh, this uh, drummer that I met, he, he was from Olympia, Washington. He came up to Seattle, Buzzy Bridgeford. And uh, he'd been out on the road and had been to New York and had been friends with Bird and J.J. Johnson and Max Roach. And, and uh, But he'd uh, been in an auto accident or something. And he went home to heal up and then came up to Seattle to see what was happening. And we met at one of these jam sessions. And uh, he liked my talent, but he couldn't believe how innocent I was. So he decided he was going to hit me, you know. <laughs> and he taught me all the ins and outs of, about the underworld of jazz. And he was a part-time junkie, and he introduced me to all of that. Fortunately, I tried that, and I felt like I'd been poisoned. So I never, never right. wanted. I was looking for ecstasy, and I, I, I would never felt so sick in my life. Yeah. So I never did that again, fortunately. Yeah. Uh, but he showed me about swing, and and it really, I was trying to play a little drums, you know. He would, he had a job with an organ player, and if he had to take off to do a better job, he'd send me on in, 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 as a sub because he knew I wasn't good enough to steal his job. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in there somewhere, he he really showed me what the difference was between. Uh, between just playing and swinging, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and then he pointed out some of the drummers that I had already collected their records, you know, and and reaffirmed why why they were good. People like Dave Tuff and Shadow Wilson and Joe Jones and and uh, so that uh, when he was ready to move back to New York, uh, he talked me into coming with him. He said, you know, if you want to be a musician, you got to go where the music is, you know, mm -hmm. this is a weekend town. <laughs> so we got on the bus and came to New York. I had $50 and my valve trombone and, uh, and uh, we checked into a musician's hotel on 46th Street at that time, the Bristol, I think it was. And uh, it was $8 for the night. And I thought, man, I can't afford this. I only have $50, you know. So I walked around. I found Birdland. It had just opened the month before we got there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, and a, block e, a block west on 8th Avenue, I found a furnished room for $8 a week. Now I thought, oh, that's more like it. Mm -hmm. So then he showed me where Charlie's Tavern was. That was where all the musicians hung out at that time. 
in the Roseland building. And, uh, and he would take me in there and introduce me to people. You know, he knew a lot of people. I met Dave Lambert and Neil Hefty. And mm-hmm. It was funny with Neil. Uh, uh, I was doing a, a demo for him with uh, Dave Lambert. I was singing with Dave Lambert's quartet. Okay. And, uh, we walk into the studio and it's like a demo for his wife, and uh, for Fran, Fran Warren. And uh, and uh, Dave says hello to Neil, and he says, and you know Bill Crow, and he says Bill Crow, then who's Brew Moore? <laughs> he, thought, he thought he'd been saying hello to Brew all this time. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I got my toes into the water in in, uh, in New York, and I was taking my valve and going around to some jam sessions and things and playing, you know. And then Buzzy got a, a summer job. Gene Rowland got the job. It was a, a hotel way up in uh, Tupper Lake, New York, almost to the Canadian border. Okay. And then he got a summer job in 1950, and he hired Buzzy and a couple of other guys, and they went up there and uh, then uh, the next week, Buzzy's back in New York. And I said, what happened? And he said, Gene, Gene had a fight with the owner's wife on opening night and walked out and abandoned the band. So mm-hmm. I went to the owner and said, I can get you a band. You know, you don't have to be stuck without a band. So, so I didn't care for the guys that Gene had hired. And I came back to New York to, to get the band together. So he got Freddie Greenwell, uh, a wonderful Seattle tenor player. Hmm. And uh, Marty Bell was the trum- a trumpet player, and uh, an interesting character, John Benson. <clears throat> John Benson Brooks was the piano player on this job. And uh, uh, after I got to know him, uh, I found out he uh, he was a real intellectual and mystic, and uh, and he had written some pop songs, just as though you were here and. You came a long way from St. Louis, and mm-hmm. he'd written some arrangements for the Randy Brooks band. He, he wasn't related to them, even though they had the same name. But uh, <clears throat> he had this big apartment. Uh, I think his wife worked for the, the American Legion or something like that, <clears throat> and was keeping the family going that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was making some small royalties from his songwriting, but he'd been... A recluse, he'd, he'd been, I don't think he'd been out of his apartment for six or seven years. And Buzzy wow. talked him into coming up and taking this summer job on piano, which was really rare for him. So when he went, when he left to go back up there, he said to me, uh, if you want to have a nice weekend in the mountains, you know, hitchhike up and I'll put you up in my room for the weekend, you know, and you can have, you can bring your horn and sit in, you know, it'll be nice. So I did that, and uh, the night that I went down and, and, and sat in and played, he went to the owner and said, uh, sounds good with the extra horn, right? <laughs> and the owner said, yeah, it does. We were playing three-part harmony, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, well, this guy's very much in, in demand in New York, but his doctor found a little spot on his lung, and he thinks he should stay in the mountain air for a while. Maybe you could get him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. He offered me fifteen or twenty dollars a week, something like that, and room and board. Well, nobody had made any kind of offer. This was like manna from heaven, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started playing with these guys, 
And uh, the, the boss wouldn't let him hire a bass player because uh, he figured like uh, two uh, drums and piano was enough. You didn't need another rhythm instrument. So, uh, and Buzzy hated to play without a bass player. So he went out and found this kid that lived in Tupper Lake that owned a K bass and he only used it during the school year. So he rented it from him for 20 bucks for the summer. Mm-hmm. And he put it on the bandstand. I come down one night and I said, oh, bass player? And he said, no, I just got this bass. He said, when you're not playing the trombone, you got to try to play it. <laughs> <laughs> so they gaslighted me into being a bass player. Every time I'd put the bass down to pick up the trombone, they would all groan. <laughs> <laughs> when I picked up the bass, they would be enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. You know? Freddie had a tape recorder and he would call me in the daytime and say, Hey, I got, listen to this chorus. You really sound like Ray Brown here, you know. (laughs) Had you played much bass prior to that? Not at all. I I had fooled around with one in the music room in high school. You know, I knew what the tuning was, Mm -hmm. but I I never was interested in it. And, uh, uh, but uh, but I was I was really playing with some good players with on on this band and I I I wanted to get good on this instrument you know so mm-hmm. uh, I had no idea there was a fingering system I just found the notes as I as I went along and uh, by the end of the summer I was playing well enough to offer myself as a bass player when I came back to New York except I didn't have a bass mm-hmm. but I found a guy on on Sixth Avenue a little music store that had an old beat-up bass that he rented out. And I could give him $5 for the weekend. I could have this bass and go play club dates, you know. Uh, and then uh, I would go to jam sessions and, and take my trombone along, but uh, if the bass player got tired, which quite often they would, there'd be one bass player and 10 saxophone players, you know, and uh, they would all want to take 10 choruses. So uh, uh, Teddy Kodik would let me play on his bass quite a lot when he would be at jam sessions. And uh, there was another Spanish bass player that would let me play his bass. So, mm. so then uh, on the grapevine, I found this guy up in the Bronx who had a K bass that he was willing to sell for 75 bucks. And uh, I only had five to give him, I think, five or 10. And I asked him to hold it for me, you know, and he said he would. And then I took a job with Mike Riley and his musical maniacs with John Brooks on mm-hmm. piano. Just the trio. Mike was a trombone player and clown. Mm-hmm. And we went out and did all kinds of little funny towns like uh, Monessen, Pennsylvania, and Troy, New York. And uh, he was paying me 80 bucks a week on the road. And I was able to save five every week and send it to this guy until I finally owned the bass. And, and I quit that job, and I was a, I was a drummer and singer on that job, and uh, and then uh, that just started my life as a bass player. I started getting club dates, and uh, it was funny. I was walking up Seventh Avenue one day, and I run into this trumpet player that I used to work for in Seattle, Ward Cole. Mm-hmm. He had left to go with Ted Weems' band, I think, and he was working in New York. And he said, hey, you know, uh, uh, I know you double on a couple of instruments. I know a guy that needs doublers, you know, all of the guys in his band double on different things. And he gives me the name and I call him up, a guy named Glenn Moore. And yes, he, he needed me. 
I joined his band. He had about a six-piece band, I guess, and everybody doubled on different stuff. Mm -hmm. And we went up and played a week in Toronto, and we played a week in Philadelphia, and then he got some kind of a TV. Uh, I think the guy was learning how to shoot movies. It was like real amateur night, but it got better as we went along because he was learning his craft. Mm -hmm. And uh, they finally got this. Um, uh, it was an entertaining uh, film that he that he did of this band and a, and a comic that was, was this guy's partner. So he wanted to keep us together till he saw if he could peddle us to some of the TV stations. And he happened to be the guy who booked the bands on the boats that went to South America on the Moore McCormick lines. Okay. So he pulled a band off of one of the boats and put us on there. Just It was a 38-day trip down and back. And uh, that would keep us together until he could see what he did with this uh, with this film. So that was a great experience. I got to see a foreign country, and I, I rescued some of the high school Spanish that I had not paid much attention to when I took that course. <laughs> and uh, and when we came back, um, nothing had happened, so that band broke up. But uh, it, had, it had gotten me established. Uh, uh, Dave Lambert was helping me find some work, and uh, I finally, uh, I met Teddy Charles, he had a trio, and his bass player had just gotten a good job. Teddy rehearsed every day and worked about once a month, <laughs> and so that was perfect for me. I would go up to his apartment every day, and he would teach me all the bebop changes. I, I knew all of the Dixieland tunes, but I didn't know, you know, I had started to collect Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie records when I was in the army, but mm -hmm. I didn't really know all of that material, but he showed me what the right tunes, right chords to uh, around about mid midnight were and uh, things like that. And uh, when we did play jobs, it was, it was like straight, bebop you know okay. guitar uh, bass and and vibes and uh, I, I scuffled along with that for oh uh, I, uh, it was like several months i guess that we we did that and uh, in between uh, dave lambert was scuffling at that time he'd lost a lot of his connections when mm -hmm. buddy stewart died and uh, so he was showing me how to scuffle. He had a cheap apartment, and I found one. And uh, for a while, I was staying with him. And then uh, uh, he would like we'd go paint somebody's apartment, or babysit their kids, or uh, move people from one apartment to another, or babysit their car. All kinds of things. We would just make nickels and dimes, but we were keeping each other alive. You know? <laughs> and uh, finally, I was getting enough work that I could afford an apartment of my own and uh, found one on, on Cornelia Street. It started out, it was 50 bucks a month as a studio apartment. It was really half of an old cold water flat. Okay. And uh, the guy upstairs, after I moved in, he came down and he said, I think... Uh, I think they're uh, ripping us off here. I think this is supposed to be a rent-controlled building, you know. So he said, I'll check into this. So he called somebody downtown, and 
This guy shows up at my door with a clipboard. And he looks around and says, studio apartment, are they kidding? And he writes something and goes away. And the next week I got a notice that my rent from now on with the increase would be $28.80 a month. Okay. <laughs> so that saved me. It was, yeah. uh, it was the, the, the apartment had a bathtub in the kitchen with a lid on it, you know, and, and a refrigerator and hot water. And a little fireplace. There was no heat in the room except in, except this fireplace. But uh, they got me through. If I got a job that took me on the road, I could just lock the door at those prices. Right. You know, like, I didn't have to find a, uh, some. I, I, a couple of times, friends of mine that uh, that were in uh, in the same situation I was. If I was out of town. I'd let them stay there. Jim Hall stayed there for about a month. Freddie Greenwell stayed there for a while. And uh, uh, I stayed in that apartment for about 10 years. It was great. But eventually, through through Teddy, uh, his guitar player went with Benny Goodman, and Jimmy Rainey was at loose ends because he'd been working with Stan Getz, and Stan had gone to the West Coast by himself for the summer. And so Jimmy came and played with us. And then when Stan came back, uh, he called Jimmy up and said, I got a job in Boston for a week. And uh, Roy Haynes is going to, he lives up there, so he's going to be the drummer. And I got a piano player, so get a bass player and come on up, you know. So Jimmy got me the mm -hmm. job. And that was my first really good break. I, uh, I played that week with Stan. And then uh, he kept me on for six months. I played... Uh, Oh, Birdland, and we recorded, and uh, uh, then Jimmy left. He got a steady job at the Blue Angel, and and we were a quartet with uh, Duke Jordan and Kenny Clark for a little while, mm -hmm. and then they went to do something else, and he started a new band with uh, uh, Al Levitt and Johnny Williams, and he asked me who we, you know, he said, well, <laughs> I got to, I got to start a new band. Who should we get? You know? So I said, well, I heard this trombone player, Bob Brookmeyer at uh, Med Flory's place and he's really wonderful. So he calls Bob up and Bob said, Oh, I'm glad to have the job, but I got to give this band two weeks notice before I can leave. You know, he was working with, uh, some big band as a piano player. So, uh, uh, Johnny Mandel was an old friend of Stan, so he, he called Johnny up, and he was just trying to write for Elliot Lawrence at the time. And he, But he was a good trombone player, so he said, John, come on, you know, I got these two weeks in Baltimore and Washington, why don't you come and do it? So he came out with us, and uh, he played so well, Stan said, you know, if you want to stay on the band, I can just tell Bob to forget it, and... Uh, and uh, and you can be my trombone player. And John says, oh, man, if I come out on the road, uh, I'll never get any writing done. I got a lot of stuff to write, you know. So he didn't take the job, and Bob did. And, and then uh, uh, that rhythm section never really gelled. Uh, John Williams wanted to be right up on the front end of the beat, and he was like a Horace Silver fan. And Al Levitt was trying to relax things, and I was in between. I didn't really know what to do. I didn't have enough experience, you know. So Stan decided to go back with uh, uh, Teddy Kotick, who was playing with Claude Thornhill then. 
and I went back to New York and uh, found out that uh, they were looking for a bass player for Claude's band, so I took that job. Mm -hmm. And I spent the summer in 1953 on the road doing one-nighters with Claude. Wow. So what exactly in, in, in that late 40s, early 50s, what was the jazz culture like in New York City like, and, and being a part of it? Well, uh, uh, there was a, I mean, I was, I was lucky. I was, uh, I was in a new bass player and, uh, and I, I was available, you know. So I'd be standing in Charlie's Tavern, you know, trying to see who was around that I knew and try to meet new people. And somebody would come in and say, I need a bass player for Saturday night. I'd take it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, and then I would, uh, the grapevine would tell you where the jam sessions were. Like uh, Jimmy Nepper and Joe Maney had a place at 136th Street that was in the basement. And then the, the room was actually out under the street. So you could play in there all night and nobody would hear you, you know, it was really great. And, uh, uh, oh, I would, uh, that was where I met Charlie Parker. He used to, he knew those guys and he used to drop in and play once in a while. Now, I was such a young bass player, I never told Parker that I played anything, you know, I just became friends with him. Right. But, but I... I, uh, I didn't want to admit that I was a player because I, I was afraid of him. But, uh, but he was such a generous guy. I never saw him make anybody feel bad about their playing or anything like that. You know, it's, he always encouraged everybody to play. And, uh, when, uh, I, I understand from stories other people told me that when he was ne needing uh, to, to find some junk and didn't have any money, he could be as irresponsible as junkies are, you know, but but uh, all the times that I was ever with him and, and around him, he was just the kindest man and, and he had a sweet nature and he was interested in everything. Mm. So, I mean, if you were a, a rocket scientist or a, a classical composer or whatever, he would be interested in what you do and he'd be able to talk to you about it, you know. Wow. That's he came over to my house one time and uh, was looking through my record collection and he picked out all the things that he hadn't heard, you know, a couple of classical things and uh, and he wanted to hear those things, you know. And I remember one time uh, Buddy Jones had a, an apartment right across the street from Birdland uh, upstairs and I was up there with Buddy and Neil Friel and Buzzy and and Freddie Greenwell and uh, Bert came up uh, I know we were just smoking some pot or something like that and uh, and he noticed that Neil had a an exercise book from France that had a lot of curly cues in it and things he was just standing there looking at it and uh, and then we went over to hear him at Birdland afterwards when the gig started and he's using these figures that he just looked at as part of his solos you know he was a real sponge. He would hear something, and and uh, well, Buddy Jones used to have a collection of of uh, tapes from a tape recorder that he had from jam sessions where Bird was playing, and uh, and there were there would be there was one one tune where he's playing on a tune that modulates every four bars, and uh, and he he played this figure that f fit the first four bars so perfectly it was just 
when he found this wonderful melody that was in there, and then it, when it modulated to the next four bars, he would, he figured out a way to play it almost in the same key that he had played it in the first four bars, but altering a couple of notes so that it fit the new the new chords, and it was still it still was like a marvelous invention. And then the third time he started to do it, and he realized there's no way he's going to get this in here, so he just went on and played something else. Mm -hmm. But every time he would come around to that spot in his chorus, uh, on the next chorus, you'd see him like fooling around with those notes to see, and then he'd go ahead and play something else. But he was keeping track of two things at once, mm -hmm. you know. Just, wow. just he, he just. Well, Al Cohen said it best. He said, "People don't understand." He said. It's not that Charlie Parker was better than everybody else. He said it's that there was everybody else, and then there was Charlie Parker. You know, <laughs> he was just—he was just a different kind of musician that nobody had ever seen before. Mm. So yeah. it was really—it was really such a thrill to be around him. And you could go down to Bird. You know, when I got here the first week, I'm in town. Bird was at Birdland, and. Uh, you could get in for 75 cents, I think, at that time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, that's just where I went every night. It was like going to school, you know. Right. His, his band was Red Rodney, uh, Bud Powell, uh, Roy Haynes, Tommy Potter. And then the house band was Al Haig, uh, Curly Russell, Max Roach, Miles Davis, Sonny Stitt, and J.J. Johnson. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the peanut gallery, like I'm going to school, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I look around. And I say, "Why? Wow, there's Lester Young sitting over there. There's Ben Webster sitting over there. There's Joe Jones over there." Uh, I just thought New York was always going to be like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One other name um, that that jumped out to me as we were talking was was Dave Lambert. Um, yeah. I. I'm a big fan of Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross, and then later Lambert, Hendricks, and Bavon. Um, if you could talk a little bit about Dave Lambert. And well, like when him. I met him, he was, he was just breaking up with his wife. They were living down on uh, Monroe Street. They had a, a $25 a month apartment there, I think. And he had a four-year-old daughter, you know. Mm. And... Uh, uh, I started hanging out with them, and, and they knew so many interesting people, you know, he he would take me to parties and to jam sessions and to other people's houses, and I would meet all these interesting people. Uh, I had started out, I got a job in a print shop up in the Bronx just to survive. Mm -hmm. It was a terrible job. Uh, I knew how to feed a, a hand press and set up... Uh, type for it you know but these people are all screaming at each other and oh uh, it was a, a long a long trip up there on the subway and they were only paying me $30 a week out of which I was paying well I had found a drummer to live with that had a $12 a week apartment a month okay. apartment so I was paying $6 a month to live and uh, uh I had started taking lessons with with Lenny Tristano on on the Valve Dermont, and that meant a trip out to Forest Hills once a week, and uh, I had to pay him ten dollars. Hmm. And um, 
so, you know, I was just getting by and there was one spring day when I just couldn't go back to work in that awful place. So I walked down to the Lower East Side and visited Davy Lambert instead. And uh, I never did go back to, <laughs> to that way. He showed me how to scuffle, you know. Yeah. He showed me how to find a cheap place to live and how to find cheap food to, to eat and, and how to make a dollar or two uh, different ways. So uh, he got me some work as a singer and... Uh, uh, oh... Uh, uh, he, well, he was an old friend of John Benson Brooks's. So uh, uh, when I came back from that summer job, uh, I didn't have any place to stay. John put me up for about two months. He had a big, big apartment and he had a spare room there. Okay. And that was really, and he had a grand piano and a record collection, you know. So I, I really spent some good days up there. And... Uh, uh, then uh, Dave found this uh, 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 basement apartment on 10th Street, and he needed somebody to help him with the rent, so I moved in. He had the bed, and I had the couch. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, right around that time, uh, oh, oh, he had a, he had a little, uh, it was only about a 60-key piano, I guess it was, a little they used to use them for songwriters that were plugging their tunes. They would push them out on the dance floor. <laughs> they would play their song. So there was a place that he could rent this for real cheap, uh, um, a monthly rent. Mm. And uh, we were paying really cheap rent. This was like a basement that used to be a coal bin. And it was now, <laughs> now a rentable room. And uh, we were getting our electricity from... Uh, the typewriter shop in front we ran a wire in there and we'd give the guy five bucks every once in a while because we didn't use anything more than lights and and playing the record player and uh, oh we had a jukebox in there for a while a friend of ours was uh, was a, a singer that uh, had inherited this uh, old Seberg jukebox I guess that was our, our record player who <laughs> 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 moved it into this basement and then Brew Moore and Zoot and uh, a whole bunch of friends of, of Dave's uh, started to come down there. I met, I met all those guys and we played together. Then after I, uh, after I came back from that uh, boat trip to Argentina and back, uh, Dave told me that he had gotten used to living by himself and uh, and he, he was making a little more money now so uh, he would appreciate it if I would find my own place which I did I found that place on Cornelia Street and eventually found him a place in the next building okay. so we both lived on Cornelia Street for about 10 years I guess and uh, it was funny there was a place on Washington Square South called the Open Door Bird used to play in there on Sundays and and uh, uh, we, I played in there with Don Joseph and Drew Moore a few times. And uh, then they tore it down because NYU owned that property and they were building a new law building or something. So when they were tearing it down, Dave's apartment had a, a, a very poor fireplace in it, very, very tiny. So we went 
and took bricks from this building that they were taking apart. We would carry like eight bricks at a time over <laughs> with two or three blocks from the open door over to Coney Street. And we got enough bricks up there to his apartment that he could build a, uh, an arch and, and, a, and a fire pit, you know, that would, and it's probably still there. <laughs> so what's um, now, most of your career was spent, as far as I can tell, with Jerry Mulligan. And if you could speak about him a little bit. And well, how no, yeah, started. It, was period, it was a period of about 10 years there. I met Jerry uh, at one of those jam sessions. And uh, there was a woman named Gail Madden that he was going with at that time. I don't know if he's going with her, but they were like partners mm -hmm. in him uh, stopping being a junkie. Okay. And she was she originally was going to have a brownstone and and be the the the, the therapist that was going to get all of these talented junkies off of junk. She was talking about Bird and. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, Stan Levy and J.J., uh, uh, and a whole bunch of different yeah, guys. It was very prevalent at that time, right? Yeah, Zoot Sims said heroin was very popular in those days. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, the whole thing fell apart when the woman that was going to bankroll this thing had a fight with Gail, and, and they broke up. So she just latched on to Jerry, and uh, I would see them on gigs. Like, he would just be the baritone player, and she would be there, and he would give her a pair of maracas to play or something. I never could figure that out. But then we heard that they were on their way to California hitchhiking. So that was uh, interesting news. Mm -hmm. And uh, right around the time that uh, Johnny Mandel came with Stan Getz, when I was with him, uh, we hear... The, uh, the Jerry Mulligan Chet Baker records for the first time on the radio and uh, uh, we were charmed with that music and uh, uh, in fact Stan said to some some uh, downbeat writer that, that he would like to have a band with Jerry and Chet and uh, and him and, and Brookmeyer you know he, he thought that would be a great sextet mm -hmm. and uh, uh, and the, the writer uh, put that in downbeat as though it was a fait accompli, and Jerry took a burn. He said, tell Stan to go get his own band. You know, but actually, that was pretty much the, the sextet that Jerry put together when I joined him. I was, I, I had been working with, uh, uh, let's see, oh, uh, when, when I came out, came out of the, the Thornhill band, uh, he went on weekends, and Terry Gibbs was looking for a bass player, uh, mm -hmm. so I, I went with him. And Terry Pollard was his piano player at that time, and Frank DeVito was the drummer. And I, we would do a week at a time in in all of the jazz cities, you know, Boston, Baltimore, Toronto, uh, Chicago, mm -hmm. Minneapolis, and. Um, we even did East St. Louis, I think. That was a terrible job. And uh, then uh, there was a, like a hiatus in his in his work. But while we were doing that, we did one concert with uh, Marion McPartland's trio when Vinnie Burke was with her. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, Ahmad Jamal, who I'd never heard of before. 
you know, I thought he was just like a cocktail piano player at that time. He, he hadn't found his groove yet, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but um, from that uh, one time that Marion heard me play with Terry, uh, when Vinnie decided to leave, she called me up, and it turned out, turned out to be uh, I was at liberty. I just lost a job uh, with uh, uh, Jerry Wald, and uh, he, he had something booked that fell through. So uh, I went with her at the Hickory House, and that was my first good job in town. I played, mm -hmm. it paid a decent salary, and and I, here I was at home every night, you know. So and I was playing with Joe Morello, which was really nice. Mm -hmm. And Marion, you know, I was still a self-taught bass player. I I would uh, I would play a. Up the up the the E string till I came to A, and then I'd play up the A string till I came to D, and then I'd go up the G string as far as I could go. And but I wasn't playing across the board much. I'd I'd started to with Claude's band because he had a theme song that went through a tenth with no open strings. It was in D flat. Okay. And, uh, and I, I, I had to sit down and really figure out how other place bass players were doing that, and that got me started playing across the, the board a little bit. So uh, Marion really put me through the changes because she loved to play in every key. You know, she would, if she played a ballad especially, we were sure to get into some sharp keys and mm -hmm. um, multi-flat keys and all that. And I would suffer, you know, trying to find those notes. And I could hear what I wanted to play, but uh, the, the fingering was really uh, difficult in there. Right. Uh, the two years that I was with her, uh, I really got to be a much better player. And then Jerry came east came uh, uh, east with this sextet that he had put together in California, except that uh, Idris Suleiman had been his trumpet player and he was leaving to do something else. So John Erdley came who had played with, with Jerry on the coast. And Brookmeyer was there, and Zoot was there, and Dave Bailey was the drummer, and Peck Morrison had been the bass player, but he was going with Johnny Hodges or somebody, so they needed a bass player, and Brookmeyer recommended me. So uh, I was really happy at the Hickory House, but I couldn't turn down a chance to play with Bob and Zoot especially. I didn't really know Jerry's playing that, that well at the time. Right. But... Um, so I gave Marion my two weeks notice and started rehearsing with Jerry Sextet. And he had an album that he had started that Peck was on half of, and I finished it up. And then uh, and I got to meet Gil Evans on that day because he'd written a tune for the Sextet. And then, uh, then we did a European tour, and that was... Mm -hmm opened my eyes, you know, we started, we went over on the Andrea Doria, which sank the next year. Wow, okay. <laughs> and uh, we started uh, in uh, Napoli, and we did a tour of Italy, and then they put us on a bus and sent us to Paris. Well, that was an interesting trip from uh, from Naples to, uh, no, from, from uh, oh, where were we? 
one of, one of the northern Italian cities. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we went from there to Paris. So we got to see all that countryside between, between Italy and Paris. Yeah. And, and then uh, they put us in a... We were in the uh, in the Olympia Theater just as one of the acts. They had, uh, you know, a dog act and a comedian and uh, uh, a couple of dancers. And, uh, and the, the headliner was Jacqueline Francois, who was a, a Canadian, uh, French-Canadian singer that was very popular in France. And the, the second headliners that opened the second act were... Uh, 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 oh, these the the brother dancers. Uh, uh, this they, might they be a little too far back, but not the Nicholas brothers. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. And uh, yeah, Harold and uh, Fayard, and uh, so uh, they had they had a regular French. A pit band there that played, and we just came out and played a couple of tunes. We were one of the things on the bill, you know. Okay. But for the Nicholas Brothers, uh, uh, they had um, they had insisted that they have a jazz drummer. So Kansas Fields was their drummer. He was living in Paris, and and Kansas became our guide of Paris. You know, between him okay. and uh, and. Uh, Henri Renault and his wife. Uh, I had met Henri on a, on a record date. Uh, he came over and recorded Al Haig, and I was on that date. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so they they really showed us all the places to hang out and to eat and, and to you know, jam sessions and all that sort of thing. And we were there for a couple of weeks. And on our off day, they would take us up to some other small town and put us in a movie theater or something like mm -hmm. that for a concert. You know. So uh, that was really a, a thrilling trip. And then uh, we came back on, on one of the British queens. And when we told Henri Renault's wife that we were going on an English boat back to New York, she said, oh, you poor things, pack a lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny because on the Italian line, uh -huh. the... Uh, the quality of the food and the wine was just perfect. You know, they would give you small portions of delicious things to eat and change the wine every so often. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one kind of wine that I, I loved so much that I wrote everything down on the label. When I got back to New York, I went into a wine store and said, can you find this for me? And he looked it up. He said, you'll never get this. He said, the Italian line buys the entire product wow. of, of that vineyard <laughs> so, so uh, anyway but uh, but the, the the attitude in the British lines was to give you uh, huge quantities of food but uh, it was not too well prepared you know right. <laughs> so anyway that was a, and then when we got back to New York Zoot had decided to stay in Paris. They treated him so well while he was there mm -hmm. that he decided to stay in Paris. And John Erde had some business in Florida or something. So we became a quartet with Brookmeyer. And uh, I stayed with that group until Jerry got a little crazy and we had a fight and, and I quit. Okay. <laughs> and then I went, oh, I was doing some off-Broadway shows and 
club dates and uh, you know, once in a while, like a week with Alan Zoot or something like that, down at the half note. And then uh, some time passed and Jerry called me up and said, you know, I'm putting a new quartet together with Art Farmer. You want to be on it? And I said, of course. And uh, so uh, I, I joined that group and uh, Dave Bailey was the drummer. And uh, that lasted for a year or so, I guess. And then uh, Jerry got a chance to do a movie and I had just fallen in love and I didn't want him to go to California. So I, I left the group there. Okay. And and uh, they ended up breaking up any, in California anyway because Art Farmer went with the jazz tip and uh, he and Benny Golson started this new group. And, uh, and Jerry was doing different rehearsal bands and stuff out there while he was doing this movie. So uh, uh, I didn't work with him again until he put the big band, well, with his movie money, he felt he could afford a big band. Okay. And he tried several different versions of it, and he finally made Brookmeyer the straw boss, and Bob did the hiring. And he's the one that put that band together that became the concert jazz band. And okay. they went, uh, Zoot didn't want to be in the section. He didn't want to be reading parts. Uh, and Jerry said, well, uh, how, about, how about coming with the band as the featured soloist, you know? And Zoot said, oh yeah, okay. So they did a European tour. And uh, that uh, Mel Lewis and Buddy Clark with the rhythm section and uh, it was like Nick Travis and Connie Condoli and Don Ferrara with the three trumpets. And after the European tour, Connie and Buddy Clark went home to California and Mel Lewis decided to stay in New York. Mm -hmm. So Jerry needed a bass player and a trumpet player. So he hired me and Clark. And uh, we just were so thrilled with that band. It was so good. The charts were wonderful. The band was really hitting together and Clark brought a, uh, he's got such a, a, a big bag of tricks and is so musical and so personal. Mm -hmm. So he became uh, one of our featured soloists. And uh, I mean, that band was so good that guys would turn down record dates in, in order to play at the Vanguard for not much money, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, 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 and, and Jerry had a deal with Norman Grants that if Norman could have the record dates and the European tours, uh, he would pick up the losses for the band on jobs that didn't pay enough to okay. really pay the band in this country. You know? mm. So we were down in Florida playing in uh, the hell week that they always have when the colleges are on vacation. Okay, yeah. And they were trying to keep them from sleeping and having sex on the beach so they were having concert jazz concerts and whatever they could think of to entertain these kids and we were one of the entertainers so while we're down there jerry gets a a message from uh, from norman grants that he's selling verve records and the deal is off Wow. So Jerry looks at his book and says, I don't have anything booked for the big band until next month in Boston. He said, I can't afford this, you know. So he breaks up the band. Hmm. And we went back to playing as a quartet with Brookmeyer. But we loved that band so much that 
uh, we would rehearse once a week up at uh, Lynn Oliver's place in, in New York. And, uh, and the arrangers were still bringing in charts and uh, everybody was having a good time rehearsing with the band. And uh, that was when we first met uh, Gary McFarland. Uh, uh, Brookmeyer had met him uh, at, uh, there was an arranger's uh, office that, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, Charlotte, Emil Charlotte. And all the guys like uh, Quincy Jones would, was very good at booking jobs and he would take so much work he couldn't possibly do it all, you know, mm. in time. So he would get people like Brookmeyer and Ralph Burns and uh, oh, Hale Rude, uh, all these ghostwriters would, uh, he would sketch out things and they would write the charts for him, you know. And mm. um, and so Gary came to one of the, one of those. Listen, right. I got to answer sure, my sure. phone. Okay, gotcha. So one other thing that, that jumped out to me about your resume, in 1958, you you played with Duke Ellington's orchestra. Yeah. How, how did you get into that, and what was it like to play in that band for a show? Well, there was a, a concert at uh, Lewisohn Stadium, which was a, up near Columbia University. It was an outdoor stadium. And uh, I played several jazz concerts up there. So we had this, I was with Jerry's band and, uh, and Duke's, uh, we were, the two bands were on this concert. And Duke had asked if he could be on first because uh, uh, he had something to, he had some place to be that evening. He wanted to get out of there. So his band is all set up and we're waiting in the wings, you know, and uh, his bass player doesn't show up, Jimmy Woody. So uh, Duke's looking at his watch and he's looking at the sky. He's afraid it's going to rain. Mm -hmm. Then he comes over to me and grabs me by the sleeve and says, come with me. <laughs> so I'm standing there with my bass. I go down and I start to get the book out. It's laying on the floor underneath the bass stand. And Britt Woodman says, he's right behind me. He says, don't do that. That's all been changed, you know. So... Uh, I just look around and I said, no, well, what are, what are we going to, uh, but he said, just hang around in B flat for a while while Duke talks and we'll, we'll tell you when to change. You know? So Duke is making his announcements and all, and I'm just playing with the rhythm section, you mm -hmm. know, Sam Woodyard is way up on the top of the, of the risers. He's not, not close to me at all, but he's easy to play with. So, so uh, I'm not having any trouble there. And, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's thrilling to be standing there among all these heroes of mine, Johnny Hodges. And, yeah. and uh, so uh, Duke kicks off some tunes and he has sense enough to go back into the early book. So it would be tunes I would know, you know, and I didn't have any trouble playing. And I'm having a wonderful time. And then when he wants to play a ballad that he knows I don't know, he, the piano was right next to the bass. Okay. He comes right to the piano, and I'm standing there looking at the keyboard, you know, to see 
where his hands are mm -hmm. and he just points at my bass note he doesn't play it he just points at it and i play it and he sees that that's going to work so through the whole tune every time the chord changes he just points wow. to the bass and i play it and uh, so i'm standing there grinning like a fool and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and jerry gets upset about it he, he, when 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 i'm finished and go go back up to set up with his band he says to me how come you don't have that much fun playing with me? You know? And I said, oh, come on, man. I said, you play with Duke all the time. Let me have my fun, you know? Yeah. And so he says something to Duke about tiring out his bass player. <laughs> you know? But, yeah. uh, but that, that was a thrilling day. I, I saw Duke uh, uh, that same summer. We did a, we did a, uh, a festival that George Ween was trying out in, uh, French Lick, Indiana. So it was a place that had been lily white until they did this thing. So okay. he made everybody down there assure him that there would be no bullshit, you know. Right. And, um, and so uh, we're all down there. And uh, uh, it was well, that was when Art Farmer was still with us. Let's see. Art, yeah, Art and Dave and me and, and Jerry. And... Uh, Art and Dave were a little worried about going in the pool because there's all of that fuss about black people, you right. know, going in the swimming pools. So they were considering whether to go up and get their bathing suits or not. And here comes Dizzy out of the esc uh, out of the elevator, and he's wearing uh, a Sheraton uh, uh, bath towel as as though it's a cape, and then it's fastened with a, a scarab pin that he's picked up in Egypt someplace. And he's wearing a braided cap that he picked up in Uzbekistan someplace. And he's got a cigarette holder that's ivory with a cigarette in it and a blaupunk uh, portable radio. And he's wearing slippers that the toes curl up. They probably got in Persia. Mm -hmm. And he walks over to the diving board and puts all this stuff down by a chair. And then he sees Jimmy McPartland standing there in his bathing suit. So... He shucks his his towel, and he grabs Jimmy, and they both get up on the diving board and jump in the pool and integrate the pool. <laughs> so I'm laughing about this, and I'm getting ready to go get my my bathing suit. And the door, the elevator door opens, and Duke walks out, and he says, "Ah, Mr. Crow," he said, "I never." had the opportunity to remunerate you for your excellent services there at Louisville Stadium, mm -hmm. and I said, "Duke." That was the thrill of my life. You please be my guest, and he went on into to dinner. You know, wow. but that that was really nice. I did get to. Uh, I hadn't. I had met Duke, Duke before that because uh, when I was with Marion at the Hickory House, Duke's publicist Joe Morgan had worked out a deal with the Hickory House that if they could eat there for nothing, that he would publicize the Hickory House. He'd get the name in. Walter Winchell's mm -hmm. column or something like that. And so Duke came in every now and then and had dinner there. And sometimes, I mean, he always came over and said hello. And uh, a couple of times, Marion coaxed him into coming and sitting in with Joe and me, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had played with him before. But uh, that was uh, that band. And God, I must say that, that uh, I, it it's just still thrills me to my socks when I listen to that band. Yeah. There was a, there was a little piece of film that was on uh, YouTube recently that 
where uh, Johnny Hodges is playing one of the ballads that he became famous for. I forget the name now. now. Um, but evidently it was the first time that he'd played it in public because Duke is standing there holding the music <laughs> for him. You know? <laughs> and the band just sounded so good. Johnny sounded so good. I, I was I, Since I was a kid in high school, I was in love with Johnny Hodges' sound and the way he played. Uh, so that uh, when I first heard Bird, I wasn't too impressed. I, w I was impressed with how he got over the horn, but mm -hmm. it, it didn't sound like Johnny Hodges. That was my ideal, you know. But then I finally got used to Bird's sound and, and grew to love it. But. Yeah, wow. I'd also like to um, talk a little bit about your Soviet Union tour with Benny Goodman. <laughs> well, that was uh, my first encounter with Benny. His his uh, manager called me up and said, uh, "Benny would like you to come up and uh, and play at, uh, at Lynn Oliver's studio." And uh, I said, "Okay." So I went up there, and uh, John Bunch was the piano player, and he had two or three young drummers that I hadn't met before that he seemed to be auditioning. You know, they took turns playing. And he'd spent a lot of time looking for a reed, and and he would, uh, he would say, do you know this tune, or do you know that tune? And they were all standards that I knew. So I started making jokes like... Uh, uh, how about uh, Hello Central, Give Me Heaven, Because My Daddy's There, you know, mm -hmm. you know that tune? And, and I couldn't get a laugh out of him. He didn't, he didn't see anything funny about it. <laughs> so, so I just went ahead and, and played, you know, and, you know, he would play like halfway through a tune sometimes and stop, and uh, or he'd play one chorus, or he'd play a couple of choruses, uh, but... Uh, uh, and then he finally said, "Okay, boys, I guess that's uh, I guess that's it." And he packed up and left. So uh, about a month later, I called up his office and talked to his manager, and I said, "You know, I never got paid for that rehearsal." And he says, "Oh, that wasn't a rehearsal; it was a jam session." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Geez, I wish I had known. I would have taken a chorus." You know? <laughs> so then. Uh, this is oh a year or so later. I get this a call from now. By this time, I've I've exchanged enough Benny Goodman stories with other musicians that worked for him that I I know a little bit about uh, that he that he strikes a hard bargain, but uh, as a result, he ends up paying more for for most of his bands than than Woody would have to, for example. Okay. Um, and uh, and that he's always on the phone when you're talking to his manager, you know, he's listening in. Mm -hmm. So the manager calls me and says, uh, uh, Benny's going to do this tour of Russia and wants to know if you're interested. And uh, I was very interested. And, uh, and he says he wants to know how much you would want. And uh, I said, well, you know, I had to think about what Jerry had paid me for European tours and things like that, and figured that it should be a little more than that. So I asked for $300 a week. I, I thought that was fair. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he said, well, we'll get back to you. And well, that meant he had to talk to Benny. And he calls me back and he says, so Benny says, that's okay. 
but he has to have the record date. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you, you, would, you wouldn't get paid for the record date because they're going to record it in, you know, while you're playing concerts in, uh -huh. in Rome. I said, okay. So I didn't know, I didn't know that was against union regulations. And, uh, 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 so, so he calls a couple of rehearsals and, uh, we're going through all this new music that's just been written. He's gotten, uh, several of the arrangers around town to write stuff. And Brookmeyer was one of them. He'd brought in one chart that he'd written. And uh, it was a, for a standard tune, you know, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was a tune from from Benny's knowledge of, mm -hmm. of popular tunes, you know, that he would know it. Um, and Benny says to Bob, uh, what's the tempo, Bob? And Bob kicks off tempo like this and then he kicks off a tempo that's about half that mm -hmm. and the, the arrangement didn't work at that tempo we, we played it once and we never played it again you know um johnny carisi came in with an arrangement that uh, he was slick he knew that uh uh benny had done uh sing 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 was like a big big hit for mm -hmm. him and uh, the format was uh, like an old Jewish melody that that uh, they turned into a swing tune, you know, and, and there was room for Benny to play with the tom-toms and all. So he took a Bulgar melody that he found and did the same thing. He, he, he made like a band arrangement and then tom-toms and place for, for Benny to go as long as he wanted to with the drums and then a shout chorus out, you know. Mm -hmm. So Benny liked that. He, he called it the vulgar vulgar. And uh, uh, so we, we, we played uh, a couple of concerts on the way out to the West Coast and did a week at the Seattle World's Fair as a break-in before we went to Russia. Okay. And uh, at that at the concerts at the Seattle World's Fair, he was playing his number almost every day. And one day, uh, when Mel starts with the tom-toms, uh, he looks at Zoot and says, Zoot, you play. So Zoot gets up and plays. That wasn't really his thing to play with the tom-toms, but he, he played a little something, you know. And then Benny played his thing, and we took it out, you know. So the next time... Uh, he says, Zoot, you play. And then he says to Phil, Phil, you play something. Phil stood up and played something that was breathtaking. It was just such a beautiful glass house construction. <laughs> and he's standing there, the whole band is standing there with their mouths hanging open. It's just, and the only sensible thing to do would have been to take it out from there because you're not going to... You're not going to put anything on top of that. It was right. just uh, one of one of Phil's best choruses, and and as a result, Benny couldn't think of anything except how well Phil had played on his own chorus. He's just tweedling around and and not really thinking about the music, you know. And he finally takes it out. We never played that song again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so. Once you um, come back from that tour, what was the remainder of your musician career like? 
Did you continue to play in New well, York? And... Oh yeah. Uh, uh, when we got off of the uh, when we got off the plane, Jack Lewis was waiting for us. He had a record date that Al Cohen had written the charts, and uh, and and Phil Woods was going to play the clarinet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, I liked that album. That was great. That was Eddie Costa's last album. You know, we didn't have any of the the piano players uh, that had been with us were Teddy Wilson and John Bunch. And they had both stayed at Paris, and Joe Newman and Joe Wilder had gone to Sweden because their wives were from there and had gone home while we were in in uh, Russia. So uh, uh, they got Marky Markowitz, I think. Uh, it wasn't as big a band as as Benny's band had been for that record date, but it was mostly guys from the tour, you know. Um, well, I came back and. Uh, uh, I did some more things with Jerry, uh, and then uh, then I, I quit him again because he got nuts, and uh, uh, I came back to New York, and he was on his way, way to the West Coast. I left in Chicago and came home, and uh, uh, I was playing a lot with... Uh, with Alan Zoot and uh, oh, just there was just a lot of different stuff. Uh, Roger Kellaway had a couple of jobs that I did, and um, uh, I got in. Oh, I was walking up the street and ran into Kay Winding. I had done the, the last uh, jobs that he and Jay had uh, when they when they had Jay and Kay. Uh, I finished up like a week in, in Basin Street West and a record date and the Newport Jazz Festival and then they were breaking that band up. It was funny. Uh, we were playing in uh, uh, in Roseland in, the, in Basin, uh, the old Roseland building, Basin Street West. Uh, and Carl Fontana had come in because Kay was putting together a four trombone band as soon as this band was over with and they were starting to rehearse so Carl had come into town and he he came in that night had his trombone with him and came motions him up <coughs> and it happened to be Kenny Clark was a drummer and he had a toothache and he was feeling bad and, and Dick Katz was the piano player <coughs> I was the I had just replaced whoever the previous bass player had been and uh, Jay and Kay were like phoning in their parts. They'd been playing these tunes. They had hits, you know, and they had to play them over and over again. And uh, Carl came up and he sat in. He knew these tunes because they were hits. So he he faked a third part to the to the two part harmony that that Jay had written for them. Mm-hmm. And it perked them right up. And then he took the first co- chorus and he played so good that they both really took care of business, right. you know, they, they <laughs> it brought them into focus immediately. Mm-hmm. And Kenny Clark right away, as soon as they started playing good, he, he forgot about his toothache and started mm-hmm. to play. So we had a great night, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, when that was all over, sometime later, I, I ran into Kay uh, on the street, and he said, hey, uh, the, the Playboy Club finally got their... Uh, 
uh, cabaret license. So we're putting in full bands up there now. You know, I'd, I'd like you to come and work one of the rooms, you know, with that. Like a steady gig. Well, I was doing weekends at Condon's at that time. They wouldn't hire a bass player for a whole week. They would just hire you on the busy nights. You okay. Know? That was how uh, Dave McKenna got to playing walking bass lines because uh, on the when he was there as the house piano player, it was like three nights a week that he didn't have a bass player. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, I quit that job and went to the Playboy Club and I was playing with Walter Norris's quartet. <coughs> and uh, when we first started there, we were playing jazz for dancing on the fifth floor. There was music on every floor. And uh, Kate had the band downstairs. He had a great band. He had Earl May, Al Gaffa, uh, Monty Alexander, uh, and Al Foster. And when Monty Alexander left, uh, Larry Willis came in. So that was a hot band. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, got to listen to them. That was nice. But uh, our band started out with Walter and me and uh, Jerome Richardson and Bobby Donaldson. And Jerome and Bobby soon had other fish to fry and, and quit that job. Mm-hmm. It was just like a dance band, you know, playing jazz tunes. And uh, so we got uh, Joe Farrell and Ray Mosca. And Joe was just fabulous. I loved the way he played. But it wasn't too long before they cut us down to a trio and we had to do without the tenor flip. And then then they would put us on weekends and then they'd have us back full time and then they'd have like private parties we needed to play and in and out. <clears throat> so there was sometimes that I would just either I had the time off or I would send in a sub and go play with Alan Zoo down the half note, you know, for mm-hmm. a week. <clears throat> but I stayed on that job. Finally they put us in a showroom and we would just play for a singer and a comic different one each week you know okay and uh we stayed there oh god five years i guess and then uh walter had a a run-in with somebody from the main office in chicago and they fired us and uh uh then i looked around there wasn't much happening on the in the jazz world I, i wasn't getting any nibbles from anybody so uh, so I, I started taking club dates, uh, and uh, I, the club date business was really hot then, and there was a lot of work, and I, I graduated to the Peter Duchin band very, very quickly, and I spent a couple of years with Peter. It was just weekends, mostly flying out of town mm-hmm. to rich places like the King Ranch in Texas, okay. and, uh, Fort Lauderdale, uh, uh, country clubs mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was a very good band but it was a club date band you know Peter could play but he, uh, he would get either drunk or distracted and he didn't play that well you know but the rest of the band was great mm-hmm. <laughs> so the first year I was with him he was impressed with the people I had worked with and and, and I got along with him okay but then the second year, I'd only been playing with him, and he wasn't so impressed. 
And he had to start, he started to have opinions about bass lines that I didn't think he was entitled to, so I left. Mm. And then uh, I, I lucked into some Broadway shows. Okay. And I did that for about 10 years. So I did a couple of long runs. Well, the first ones I did, the first one only lasted uh, 13 weeks, I think. And the second one lasted five weeks. And then I got one that lasted two years. And then uh, when that was over, I did a summer of flops, but they were consecutive. So it was like having a steady job. Right. And then I caught uh, uh, a, a dinner theater that was seven minutes from my house in Manuet, New York. And, uh, and I did that for about a year. I was just playing musicals. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. It started out playing just for, for singers. Uh, we did Billy Eckstein and a couple of people. Then they changed it to a, to a dinner theater. And we did uh, like Irene and uh, different musicals like that with a, like a five or six piece band. And, uh, but it was so close to home. When, when Johnny Lesko called me to do a, a Broadway show again, mm-hmm. I said, geez, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm right close to home here. And, uh, and if you figure in the transportation and the parking and all of that that I have to pay if I come into this right. city, uh, and they're, pay- they're paying us to play for dancing extra on the weekends here. You know, it's, it's, it's almost the same money. And Johnny says, well, uh, I'll have them put a tuba part in the in, in the overture, and that'll give you the double, you know. And I said, well, let me get back to you. So I talked to the guy I was working for in, in Nanuet, and, I, and he said, oh, take it. He said, if the show doesn't run, you can always come back here. Uh, great. Yeah. I took the show. It was 42nd Street. It ran for eight and a half years. And the job that I was leaving uh, folded that winter. <laughs> so, <laughs> it worked out. Well, I was lucky I made the move. But yeah. uh, uh, at that time, I was on the theater committee uh, with Local 802. And I helped negotiate some contracts, one of which... Uh, was a, a provision that we had been trying to get for years of the right to take off. They used to they, they used to have really mediocre bands in the pits in New York because you couldn't take off. And okay. as the shows ran longer and longer, uh, if you stayed with a show for a couple of years, you'd be out of the music business if you hadn't kept any of your other uh, contacts going, you know. Right. So uh, we wanted, We told them, look, we, we've already negotiated vacation time, and if somebody gets sick, they have to have a sub. It's to your advantage, and at no cost to you, we can have prepared subs that are ready to take our places, and we should have the right to take off if we get a record date or you know, a concert or something mm-hmm. like that. So and and there was one guy uh, on management side who had been a musician and understood what we were saying, and okay. he offered us fifty percent. He said, "You all right? You can be off fifty percent of the time and still own the show, but the 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 conductor has to have the approval of your sub." And and that was perfect. It right. was exactly what we wanted. Every negotiation after that, they wanted some of that back, and we would say. 
where are the grievances? You know, nobody, nobody has complained about the way this is working, and it's still that way. It's really great. Wow. So you also um, authored two books. Yeah. Um, and and done a good bit more writing as well. Um, can can people find these books still? Uh, yeah, they're still uh, available. Um, one of the books was did so well that they still keep it in stock. The first one, okay. Jazz Anecdotes, was republished as a paperback as Jazz Anecdotes second time around, in which I added some more story. Okay. But the second book, it had gone into, uh, like if you look for it on their website, it would say uh, out of out of print or, or no, they never they never used that term. It was always that it was out of stock. Okay. So I called up the the guy the guy that had gotten me to do the books in the first place was a jazz fan. He's one of the vice presidents there. And uh, I called him out and I said, "Look, uh, uh, if you're not gonna if you're not gonna print any more copies of my book, can I have the uh, the copyright back because uh, I'd like to sh uh, to peddle it to some other publishers?" And they said, "Oh yeah, we could do that." But he said, "I think you're eligible for print on demand." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well, we print up a bunch of covers, and uh, when somebody orders the book." We can print it so fast and get it to them that it, it, it can be out in a week. You know, it's okay. just the new, new computer world. You yeah. Because so, when I first started to write that book, I was writing on a, uh, a, a very early uh, Radio Shack model computer that I had. And uh, uh, I, I sent them... Uh, I think it was disc, floppy disks okay. of the of the manuscript, and they had to translate them to linotype, I guess. And there were a lot of mistakes made in the translation. So when I I looked at the proofs and I corrected all of these mistakes, mm -hmm. it didn't occur to me that I should see another set of proofs. You know, when I first got the book. I open the book and there's a misspelled word, the first thing I see, you know. And so I got that all straightened out uh, in the uh, in the paperback version mm -hmm. because the, the computers had improved now. They could take it directly from what I sent them on a disc to the uh, to the linotype. Right. So, uh, 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 those two books are uh, are still I, I I still see them available on Amazon and and on Oxford's uh, uh, website. Okay, great. The way I got started was when we when we uh, a bunch of us that were in the in the theater business uh, at that time. Uh, got really disgusted with the old administration at Local 802. Uh, uh, they were, uh, we had, you know, we had things happen like the the president of the union would come to a negotiation and and meet with the, with the, uh, with the chief negotiator before the committee got there, you know, we would find him coming out of the guy's office lighting a cigar when we showed up, you know, and he would give them our bottom line, you know, 
you're just trying to hurry things up, you know. Right. And, and, uh, uh, so there were so many things like that in so many different fields of music that we decided it was time to change the administration. So John Glazel called me up one day and said, how would you like to be president of the union? I said, no way. And he said, well, if I can't find somebody else to do it, he said, I'll do it myself. But he said, we got to make some changes in the bylaws first. Uh, so he did. He, 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 uh, he packed some bylaw meetings with, with uh, uh, working musicians that wanted to change. And we changed the bylaws so that the officers used to be, you couldn't be any kind of an officer on the board and still be in the music business. Mm -hmm. And he said, "That's ridiculous. We need, we need people that are in touch with with what's going on, you know." So he changed it so that the the top four officers couldn't take jobs in the music business, but the rest of the board, as long as they weren't contractors or leaders, could be in the music business. Well, right away, I was willing to run for a job on the board, and when uh, oh, and he got people from the symphony and from theater and from jazz and from, and we all got elected it was a wild change and it had never happened before so once we got elected john said to me how'd you like to write a column for the uh, for the monthly paper mm -hmm. and i said i know exactly the column i'd like to write it said every time musicians get together in the band room or on the bus they start telling stories about each other. And somebody always says, somebody should write these down. Mm -hmm. I said, let me be the guy, you know. Okay. So my first column explained that. And then I wrote a few funny uh, stories that I'd either heard or been part of. And everybody got the idea immediately. And I started getting mail uh, from all over the world mm -hmm. with, with musician stories, you know. So that was 1983. I'm still writing that column every month. Wow, that's great. <laughs> so this guy, Sheldon Meyer, that was the, one of the vice presidents at Oxford University Press, was a jazz fan, and he had already collected oh, Gene Lees and Whitney Bailey and Ira Gittler, several different jazz writers to, uh, to, be, to be published with Oxford. And uh, Oxford had done anecdotes collections from the from the opera and from literature and from the military. And he said, why shouldn't we have one from jazz? So he talked to all these jazz writers and said, who would be a good person to, uh, to put a book like this together? And they all pointed at me because of my column. Mm -hmm. So he called me up and I sent him some back columns and he said, oh yes, let's do this. So he gave me a nice advance and I got a new computer and uh, I started accumulating. First, I went to Lincoln Center and went through the, the jazz library there. Mm -hmm. And then I found uh, the Institute of Jazz Studies at Rutgers had a great collection. So once a week, I go down there and spend the day reading stuff and, and extracting stories. And they had just inherited the oral history collection that Marshall Stearns had started. Okay. Was, was intended for the Smithsonian, I think, but they ended up with it. So I listened to all that stuff or read transcripts that had been made. And, you know, some guys told stories and other guys didn't, but 
all the ones I could find I collected and just poured them into my computer. Mm-hmm. It took me about two years, I guess, of, of collecting. I was looking at back issues of Downbeat and Metronome and magazines that had gone out of print, you mm-hmm. know, wonderful stuff, and, and books that had gone out of print. So uh, when it came time to put the, uh, put the book together, I realized that the stuff that was from my own experience had a little different tone to it and I had so much other stuff I just put that stuff all aside and when the first book was successful I said you know I think I've got another book and I mm-hmm. told Sheldon about it and, oh yes so he gave me an even better advance and that one I didn't I didn't have to research so much because it was all mostly from my own memory mm-hmm. and so uh, I got that out in a year I think and, uh, but then I, I, I oh, the, the thing that I found out on the first book, that after the book was finished, I had to go get permission for all of the things that right. I had okay. extracted from other publications. Uh-huh. That was some job. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, took me about six months. Wow. <laughs> well, Bill, we're just about out of time, but this has been such a great conversation. I've loved hearing your stories. Um... I've been such a, a big jazz fan for a, for a while now, and um, to hear about your career and how long it's spanned has really been a pleasure. <laughs> how did you get started? Oh, I got started, um, my grandfather was a youth of the 20s and 30s, and when I was young, I'd spend a lot of time with him. My mother would drop me off there while she was working or doing whatever she needed to do, and I'd generally spend the night and I'd get up in the morning to him tuned into either the jazz radio station or him playing records. Um, he was playing mainly the big band type stuff. Um, Duke Ellington, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Woody Herman, that whole group. Um, he was very big into the Mills Brothers. That's my earliest memory of jazz is the Mills Brothers and hearing um, I'll Be Around and Paper Doll. Yeah. And that sort of just, it all, it all always stuck with me. And then when I was old enough to start collecting my own music, I eventually kind of blew through what was popular for my age group pretty quickly. I didn't find much interest there. Some things, but not much. And then landed, landed on jazz and off I went. <laughs> So that was, yeah. for the most part, that's in a nutshell. I've been hooked ever since. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was lucky when I when I came to New York. I thought I'd, I'd missed everything because the street was dead by 1950. There was only Jimmy Ryan's left on the street, and all those other clubs were now either Chinese restaurants or strip clubs, you know. Okay. And, uh, but Birdland had just opened, and Snooky's was on 46th Street, and... Uh, I think, well, while I was still in the army, I got to go to to uh, Bop City and and uh, the Royal Roost. They were still open. Uh, I came up on a three day pass and got mm-hmm. to hear Dizzy's big band and stuff like that, you know. And uh, but there was just so much going on in New York. It was, it was really a nice time. Mm-hmm. You could go, I could go over and hear Oscar Pettiford. And I could afford to go in the place, you know. Right. <laughs> it, was, 
they didn't charge it an arm and a leg to, to hear those bands. There was a little club on 54th Street near 8th Avenue called The Downbeat, which was different from the Downbeat that was on 52nd Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, Barbara Carroll had the house trio there with uh, her husband was uh, was the bass player and uh, Andy Wasserman, I think. Herbie Wasserman was the, was the drummer. And then there was a stage there and it was big enough for a little bigger group. So when Oscar Pettiford had that six-piece band of his, he, he was in there and I was paying attention to bass players by then so uh, I really loved watching him. He played mm -hmm. at Snooky's a, uh, a lot too okay. and, uh, and I played in there with Stan Getz one time too at, uh, at the Downbeat. Mm -hmm. It's just wonderful uh, all, all the music that this city has seen. Yeah. Now I, um, I'm like 10-15 minutes away from the Deerhead where I live. Oh, have nice. you ever have you ever played at the Deerhead? Sure. Um, um uh, Bob Keller and uh, uh, I can't think of the other tenor player's name uh, put together some of the the library from Zoot Now, and uh, and we played that up there with uh, Irving Green's son played the piano and uh, and Bill Goodwin I think played drums. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I did. Um, there's a couple of like local bands. I I, I do visual art is my main my main deal. And um, I've done a couple of like poster art for for um, Deerhead, and um, an, an album cover or two, and done a bunch of like classic jazz pen and ink drawings that have been hanging around town, and down in Delaware Water Gap too. So it's, I mean, it, it it's music's probably like my biggest inspiration with the other art stuff that I do, and it's jazz has seeped into the front of most of it. Like, even my approach to my illustrations is a little jazz-like. I come up with, you know, my structure or the head arrangement of my drawing and then leave space in there to improvise artistically yeah. with how I want to do it. So yeah. even to that degree, it's it's seeped into my daily life and, and my creativity. It's, it's too bad there's no market for album covers anymore. I know. <laughs> Bert Goldblatt was an interesting uh, thing. The first, oh, when when LPs were still 10-inch LPs, okay. he did a number of uh, graphic drawings that I, I didn't care for at all. They, 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 he concentrated on the folds in somebody's crotch and their hand. Yeah. hand you know, like, I said, what is he interested in? <laughs> and, right. uh, but then when he, when he changed and got a camera and started shooting album covers with a camera he was brilliant he got some covers that were just really wonderful moments and and uh, uh, the, that one that i used for the cover of my book it was was uh, uh, of roy eldridge uh, uh, whispering into lester young's ear and lester grinning and i asked roy one time i said do you remember what you were telling lester and he said no but it must have been good <laughs> But that's a perfect moment in, in jazz. Thank you, everybody, for listening to that episode of the Planet Shivers podcast. It was great to talk to Bill, as I said in the beginning. It was an honor to have him on. I hope you enjoyed his stories. 
Bill is still out there playing music. You can still see Bill Crow play, and you can find both of his books, Jazz Anecdotes, and From Birdland to Broadway, on Amazon. Also, go check out Bill Crow's website. You'll find out other things that he's working on, as well as where he might be playing and what he's up to. It has been an incredible journey for this podcast to have hit episode 80, and I am thrilled to hit episode 80 with Bill Crow as the guest, and you've not heard the last from Bill Crow. Like I said, I want to divvy up some of these stories and, and throw them back at you. We have a lot of new, fun, exciting guests and ideas coming up. We got some old guests coming back, new guests coming on, and more great conversations to be had. Keep following the podcast. You know, I appreciate everybody who listens. And if you're new to this, you could find this episode and more on all major podcast platforms and YouTube with video. That means Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and a whole lot of others, plus YouTube with video. For this episode, there's video. I spoke with Bill Crow over Zoom, so you get to see our faces while we talk. So when you're done listening, you are done listening to this one, go check out the video as well. Until the next episode, please take care of yourself and take care of somebody else. Catch you next time.